0: the Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nichol. A couple of weeks ago, there was what can only be described as a very unusual coincidence. On July the 8th of this year, 2015, the New York Stock Exchange, the Wall Street Journal, and United Airlines were taken off the web by what were reported to be technical glitches. Now, this is not a conspiracy show. There's plenty of those already (laughs) out there, but at the very least, it's a level of failure that would cause anybody, even the most jaded, to consider the possibility that this was done deliberately. And Ren, you've warned us and been warning us before about the failures of IT governance and the risks to data security that they pose is this failure another symptom of a bigger problem
1: yes it is I mean it's just another example like you said we've talked about this before of failure of governance at the IT level but also at the corporate level Mm -hmm. Um, what we saw in all three cases was an inability to quickly assess the ever-changing security environment and make adjustments to their security to respond to that. And, you know, they keep (laughs) calling them technical glitches, but the kind of penetration that we saw, it was clear that these were some kind of breach, whether it would be internal or external. Um, And it took a long time in this world an hour is a very long time Mm -hmm. right for them to identify and um, resolve the situation. And in the case of the New York stock exchange, it was hours and hours and hours, they had to take down the entire site Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and shut down business uh, for the rest of the day, you know, in, when it comes to security, time to market is absolutely critical. You snooze, you lose. Um, From a governance perspective, um, we're still seeing evidence of a lack of leadership from the board and the executive leadership team. Mm -hmm. And what are they doing to assure the company and their um, investors and their customers that their organization is safe? And what we mean by that is that it's unique and it's ever-evolving. You, unique makes it harder for hackers to use what they've learned somewhere else, another organization, on your organization. Mm-hmm. So that's why when I'm working with my clients, I talk about having some uniqueness. Ever-evolving means that you're constantly assessing the changes in technology to look how that could be used as a threat against your company and how would you um, offset that or react to it if it happened.
0: Yeah, it's um uh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just gonna say in in addition, the thing that we didn't see um was a fast response
2: mm-hmm.
1: when it happened. Um and this is one of those places where we intersect between governance and agile, our two favorite topics. Yeah, absolutely. And we know from an Agile perspective, Agile has been proven to be the fastest time to market methodology. Right. Period. Um, So having agile capabilities in your organization allows you to integrate the emerging technologies faster um, and to identify, respond, and resolve breaches faster.
2: Right.
1: Because it's like that old joke. I saying, say cybersecurity is all about speed. So remember, if you and your friends are being chased by a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear.
2: Right. That's right.
1: You just have to be faster than the other guys. That's and
2: cybersecurity that's exactly right, yeah. Is all
1: about being faster than the other guys. You don't have to be faster than the hackers. You just have to be faster than the other guys. Um to mitigate an incredible amount of damage.
0: Yeah, it it's, uh I think what you say is spot on and um I wanna plumb the plumb the depths of the I don't want to say conspiracy because that word has a lot of bad ba- baggage, but I want to, if for just a few minutes, examine the things that these three companies seem to have in common that would make mm-hmm. them attractive to cyber terrorists. The United Airlines, of course, was involved in the attacks on the U.S. on 9-11, and we know that terrorists are obsessed with airlines. We also know that terrorists on 9-11... Targeted our financial infrastructure, and it didn't get much more financial than the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Wall Street Journal, it's a prestigious media outlet, it's conservative, and it reports on industry and commerce. Even if we all assume that this incident was just a coincidence, the aftermath among those institutions and other companies has to be that we we have a problem, and just wondered what your thoughts were on that.
2: This has
1: always been kind of, always, since the early 90s, been an interesting topic to me because um, we've had very few uh, terrorist attacks, foreign terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Right. I think officially there's like four or five in over 100 years,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which dwarfs to the number of Domestic terrorist attacks. Um, What we have known since World War II, so it really does go back this far, is that our greatest weakness and the greatest number of attacks on the United States from foreign entities are financial crimes. Right. Since the early 90s, you know, so going back to World War II, remember Germany tried on numerous occasions to flood the world market with counterfeit dollars.
0: I did not know that, that.
1: is about as basic of a financial crime, and they did it to undermine the U.S. economy, so we couldn't continue to afford to fight them.
2: Hmm.
1: Right? So <laughs> that's yeah. how far these financial crimes go um, from from foreign entities. Um, in the 90s is when we started to see them really pick up speed and frequency. Mm-hmm. And that coincides, of course, with the Internet and email and all those things. Mm-hmm. And really what we've seen very consistently is a failure on the part of really congressional failure when it's come to protecting us from foreign the real foreign terrorism, the terrorism that happens almost every day, Mm -hmm. which is in the form of financial crimes. Ironically, this is where we're always entertaining people as Americans, is that um, a lot of that, that stymied that progress and our government's ability physically to protect us, but also from a regulatory standpoint to protect us, those efforts were stymied by the credit card companies. Huh. They now severely regret that <laughs> and, and wish that they hadn't argued against it because they saw it as more regulation. Okay. And we got it into our heads at some point in the 80s that all regulation is bad, which, by the way, is exactly the same as saying all laws are bad. hmm Because the regulations are just the same laws we apply to people. A regulation is that law applied to a company. Okay. Um, and so it has to take a different form because you're talking about a company, not a person. Um, but it it is kind of, there are some pretty prominent CEOs, um, of credit card companies during the nineties who've come out since then and said that was a huge
0: mistake. I'll be, I had no idea.
1: And they regret that. And they've been trying very hard to reverse that. But we congressionally are are led by people who are very, very Mm anti-government and anti-regulation. So we can't look there um, for protection. Mm -hmm. We have to look to ourselves. Um, One of the things that I did a little bit of research because I was curious is when I looked at those three entities, the thing that I said as an IT executive is, what do they have in common? Mm-hmm. Um, they do have some things in common, and it's all under the hood. Okay. Um, and so they are using, uh, not uh, in, in entirely, but they're using very similar security software. They're using very uh, similar network vendors. Um, they've outsourced uh, their testing, actually, to the same companies and um, the same part of the country part of the world they've they have uh, significant commonality that makes them very vulnerable to uh, attackers and breaches because a, a hacker can learn something at one that they can immediately take that and apply to the other ones and you've got about an 80 to 90 percent commonality wow so that's one of the things i look for when i'm looking at just security issues at a company, is what is their level of uniqueness? Uniqueness makes you less vulnerable to attacks. Commonality makes you extremely vulnerable, period. Um, Because you've solved, (laughs) by being just like your neighbor, Mm -hmm. you've solved 90% of the problem for that person breaking into your house what I've noticed is that boards and executives do not include that in their cost benefit analysis for their deals when they're making contracts and deals with third party IT vendors. Um, and so they're, they're not considering this huge part of their own security in these deals and they really need to be.
0: That's, that's fascinating. Um, and I, uh, I, as not a technician didn't plumb that depth but um, there they did have things in common just not just not the things that uh, the folks out on the internet in uh, conspiracy land had in common mm. so what you're saying is that um, if these um, sites infrastructure are constructed similarly then breaking into them is a good chance because breaking into them is going to also coincide.
1: Right. So if we think about it, a company security is our house. Mm-hmm. If everybody in the neighborhood used the same locksmith and he used the same lock brand, mm-hmm. and actually bought all the locks from the same um, uh, lot or production lot, right? Um, all of the keys are going to be pr- very, very similar. Yeah. Off by usually one or two. Digits then, if every single house is the same layout, and all of us put our jewelry and our cash in the same places, and mm-hmm. we put our TVs in the same rooms, right we just made our neighborhood ridiculously easy for somebody to come in and break into one house after the other after the other because there's very little variance that this person needs to deal with, the- and remember variance equals risk mm-hmm. So when you take away variance from someone who wants to hurt you, you're taking away the risk for them to do those really bad things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great analogy. And, um, Ren, when we finish this morning, I'm going to have to go check the serial numbers on my locks and co- <laughs> <laughs> <compare> them-
1: <laughs> It's not likely unless your you, you're in one of those McMansion cul-de-sacs. I think it, you're probably okay.
0: It, and, and it definitely is not. So, okay, that's reassuring.
1: <laughs> Those are the ones... By the way, I had a friend who bought one brand new. And I said, let's go get you some new locks. Uh,
2: good idea. <laughs> and,
1: and then he was like, why? And then I explained to him, I'm like, look, every single lock in your neighborhood is the same brand. Oh, man. They're probably from the same lot because they were bought
0: in bulk. Oh, man. that Well, that's such a good word. Now, um... <laughs> um... And and as always, a great analogy. But 12 hours before the uh, New York Stock Exchange stopped trading, there's um, what's described as a hacktivist group that's called Anonymous. And there was a tweet Mm -hmm. from them that said, wonder if tomorrow is going to be bad for Wall Street. We can only hope. And that's the end of the quote. And that sent some social media users to question the group's involvement, like maybe like, maybe somebody from there did it. And then, afterward, Anonymous tweeted, L O L N Y S E Wall Street. And then they linked it to a clip from um, one of my favorite shows of all time, The Office. And um, the title of the episode was Stay Effing Calm. And the group didn't address the conspiracy ac- accusations, but, you know, in kind of an offhanded way, um, I thought, signaled that they were involved. And I guess, too, it's easy to dismiss the stuff that came afterward, but it's very hard, at least for me, to dismiss the things that they said prior to that event. Do you think anybody took Anonymous seriously in that 12 hours beforehand?
1: I think some people did. I know. I know. People in the United States government did. Mm -hmm. I also know there are some prominent Wall Street firms that did not. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't monitor hackers in general.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. There's a weird, to me weird, um, sentiment amongst most executives. That they pay someone to take care of that, huh. and they pay the company they're paying is a third party, mm-hmm. and it's kind of, so you always kind of look at them and go. But you realize that your hundred percent dependence on the third party is actually what will make you easier to breach.
0: So it's not an internal function. It's they've got contract workers that do this. Correct. Oh man!
1: And it's usually the same company that's working for them, and a com- one of their or more of their competitors, mm-hmm. and you know. So, um, what's always interesting is all industries tend to conglomerate around the same few vendors, and, mm-hmm. they, and they rotate um, frequently. The other thing is, I strongly believe that any organization that is on anonymous is. Radar that -hmm. doesn't take it seriously, does that at their own peril. Anonymous has proven um, their ability to um, go after anybody. And they're tenacious and they're persistent. And while they're not organized in the traditional sense, Mm -hmm. they're extremely organized. Um, They're very agile lowercase a agile um, organization and they're highly collaborative so I may not be able to breach you but I'm while I'm trying I'm going to learn something and I'm going to share that with everybody else Mm -hmm. and someone else is going to pick that up and they're going to be able to run with it and they're going to take it further and so on and so forth Um, so it's what are those things that should always be taken very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. The last point on this one is, though, every company's greatest risk is always internal. Huh. It's whoever you let in the door. Just like in the United States, remember our greatest risk of terrorism is domestic. That's right. Off the charts. There's no comparison between foreign terrorist incidents and domestic terrorist incidents. Right however you measure it, the number of them, the number of people involved in them, the number of people killed in them, domestic terrorism is off the charts because mm-hmm. it's all about access.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's the same thing with security breach. Those breaches off the charts happen internally.
0: Yeah, that thats uh, that should get everybody's attention, and I can just kind of hear them now saying, well, we got a guy that, that does that. But in the after, you know, it's kind of like... Well, they do,
1: and they'll even say, well, they're required by the contract. Well, what does the contract have to do if you have to shut down your company for an entire day and you're not getting revenue for that entire day? Your contract is not doing anything for you. Well, that's
0: exactly right. And <laughs> so with knowing that, what do you think happened in the boardrooms and the IT departments of those of those companies afterward? I mean, what were they doing... And what should they be doing?
1: Well, we know in the moment because even though some of the companies are in question um, tried to hide this, the Wall Street Journal was the best at it. But let's be honest: everybody saw United Airlines and the New York Stock Exchange freak out and panic. Oh yeah, we all saw it.
2: Yeah, okay. absolutely.
1: That was our first mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. There was a lot of chickens running around with their heads cut off, right? Right. And it was very clear to me as an outsider, they did not have the protocols in place to manage that situation. They were completely and totally unprepared. Mm. For the New New York Stock Exchange, that is, and um, as a survivor of September 11th, I will tell you that's extremely disappointing to me, because... You know, I was one of the people going around to companies and teaching them preparedness after September 11th. And they didn't learn anything from what I could see. Um, But in the United States, something to keep in mind is that only certain industries are required to have disaster recovery and business continuity plans and tests.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: What we know in financial services... And ironically, the New York Stock Exchange is outside of this requirement. But if you're J.P. Morgan Chase, which is a block away, you have to do disaster recovery tests and you have to do business continuity tests and exercises. And what this does is um, the people involved in those companies practice responding to these situations. How they're going to respond mentally, Physically, how they're going to resolve it. There's a there's a protocol,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you see those companies who do this when these things have happened are very calm and very measured. They don't spend an hour or two panicked. And so, having that emergency preparedness is huge. And yeah. like I said, I taught this to companies in the New York City. New York City and D.C., metropolitan areas for about a year,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then the executives lost interest. Huh. And, you know, I hope that these attacks are a wake-up call to the CEO, CEOs around the world. It isn't physical preparedness only. It's any time your company is um, under some breach or some attack, do your people know what, need, what they need to do? Do you have protocol or are they going to run around panicked?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like um, if there's a storm outside and and the electricity goes off, that's not a good time to wonder where the flashlight is. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the, that's the absolute wrong time to go. Huh? Yeah. Where's the flashlight. Another yeah. battery in that flashlight.
0: Or, yeah. Or do we even own one? Exactly. <laughs> well, when we when we think about you know these three incidents and then of course the the hacks and the theft of information from U.S. government sites, is it safe to say that we are just incredibly vulnerable to cyber attacks? And how come? you and I are the only ones who seem, you know, overly concerned about it. And along those lines, and you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but how is it that our political leadership has allowed this to go on and and allow all of us to be so vulnerable?
2: Well,
1: the first thing is we're definitely not the only ones concerned. It's I think for some reason... um, the media only thinks it's worthy of our attention for about 30 to 60 seconds. Right. Um, And and part of it is we are in a part of the world where our companies and our government and our government agencies are sexy and tantalizing targets. Yep. For a variety of reasons, for the money, uh, for the prestige, uh, for the... um, political messaging that could be attached to it
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and i know there are people in the pentagon where they've said well they have said the two greatest threats to the united states are one global warming and second cybersecurity."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: you know they said that over and over and over again um Neither, neither one of us seemed to get the attention of our politicians. But what I think is really interesting is a tact that a colleague of mine took, and he started asking politicians, um, every single state has seatbelt laws.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Would you repeal the seatbelt laws? Not a single politician has said yes. Not even Ron Paul. Who, That's reassuring. You know, yeah, he's a one of the most strict libertarians out there. So then he follows it up with, well, then why repeal Glass-Steagall? Because both are designed to keep individuals, people safe. Right. One is protecting people from the actions of other people. The other is protecting people from the actions of a company or an organization.
2: Right.
1: And he really... (laughs) (laughs) He had a YouTube video going around for a while. It was really hilarious to see the politician stammer. Uh But when you put it in that context, uh, the role of governance, whether we call it laws, regulations, uh, code of conduct, whatever, the purpose of governance is to protect stakeholder value. Uh And what's more valuable in the United States of America and the American people. And when they attack the New York Stock Exchange, that's my retirement plan and your retirement plan. Yeah. When they attack the United Airlines, that could be us on that plane. That's right. Or people we love. The Wall Street Journal, yeah, <laughs> It's hard to get excited <laughs> unless you own stock in the Wall Street Journal.
0: But but I'm sure but everybody But the New knows. York
1: Stock Exchange and United Airlines, that really should be freaking Americans out. And honestly, I think that's protest-worthy.
0: Yeah, I... Um... I'm sure those listening from the Wall Street Journal um, know that Ren is just kidding. Um.
1: <laughs> I love the New York Stock Exchange, but let's be honest, no one's, live. well, very few people's livelihood or lives were at risk when that happened.
0: Well, fair enough. That's, a, that's exactly The United
1: right. Airlines were talking about actual human beings and their lives. There <laughs> were people right. in the air in planes when that happened.
0: That's right. And, and
1: that's terrifying to me.
0: Well, Since and, I fly all the time <laughs> well yeah and and um the same level of fear for losing your life savings and and those right, kinds
1: of things. I really am very focused on retiring someday,
0: yes, um and the tens of billions that had to be lost in that in that period of time so mm-hmm. so let's imagine that that ren's in charge of <laughs> of remediating the i t and governance of of these three organizations? What are the steps you would take, and not just to plug the current gaps in security, but to make sure, as much as can be, that, that this just doesn't happen again?
1: Right. So, of course, we need to have security in the top-to-down governance and reporting. Um, including testing and exercises. Um, I've worked with companies, like I said, to do things similar to disaster recovery exercises where in a disaster recovery exercise, we simulate that your entire system is down. You can't access it at all. Mm -hmm. It's like physically gone. In a security exercise, we um, reconstruct uh, the different kinds of breaches that can happen, internal, external, etc mm-hmm. and how are we going to deal with that. The point is to get your company's people in the habit and practice of finding breaches and knowing exactly what to do when they happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have a swift, measured, practiced response. You don't have chaos. Chaos makes the breach more successful.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine chaos um, wastes time, and um, it it just also... And
1: and remember, breaches, it's all about time. Mm -hmm. Every every hack like this is about time. The more time you give the person attacking your company, the more their benefit they're going to get, the more you're going to lose.
0: Yeah, and, and why is it that it seems like the cyber hackers are always at least one step ahead of the security people in, in IT. Why is that?
1: Because they have um, the passion and the drive. Okay. And so going back to what we would need to do in an ideal world, I mean we need to demonstrate that as leaders. Um, so sticking with the governance, the board and executives need to be active participants in that. Mm-hmm. And. Communicate to the entire organization that it's serious. Um, there's, issuing an edict from a pie doesn't foster change. You need to be involved. You need to foster that engagement from your employees that this is serious to you. Right. And that includes working with your employees to assess the physical environment for weaknesses, including third-party involvement. Um, We should also be looking at science to help us identify potential insider attacks. We've done this to help curb um, workplace violence. No kidding. Wow. Oh, yeah. Very successfully, HR people now know what signs to look for when someone could become potentially violent. We need to get better at identifying what signs to look for that an employee might be directly or indirectly fostering a breach. There's ridiculously simple things that they can do that they might not even realize could make it easier for someone to um, attack your organization.
2: Hmm.
1: And we've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but having a single Agile or Scrum team that is only assessing security issues, I really believe that that is critical to identifying emerging threats, um, shoring up possible breach points, and strengthening security, yep. but also being able to quickly respond when there is a breach. And I know, I know, there are executives right now going, "Absolute ex- executive or absolute security is too expensive."
2: Yeah,
1: that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, let's take something that we know works that is relatively low cost. I mean, a scrum team is like eight people right. on average, right? So we're not talking about a huge investment here. And find that sweet spot where we can spend relatively little and get a huge improvement in your organization's yeah, that, security.
0: Yeah, that does sound, um, it, it doesn't sound expensive. It doesn't sound terribly difficult.
1: Um. No. One of the things I wanted to mention uh, about those simple things that people can do, mm-hmm. here's one that the person had no idea could be used this way, but someone approached them and asked to uh, them to sell copies of test cases that they had created for a global bank. Mm hmm. And the buyer said, well, I just want to see what you're doing because I have a similar project and I'd like to see how you approached it. Mm-hmm. Well, they, the, it was a third party, an employee of a third-party vendor, so they didn't even work for the bank, mm-hmm. sold the test cases. That buyer then used the information in those test cases to hack into the bank. Swell. <laughs> it is stuff that simple. Yeah, that if in the wrong hands, can do an incredible amount of damage. Right. And um, that's what I'm saying we need to look at, at these things, um, not only in our companies, but we have very strong industry uh, organizations. We should be working with those organizations to look at the same things as
2: well.
0: Yeah, that's that's so well said. Um, and the the law of unintended consequences for... Those Mm -hmm. test cases. In the time we have left, um, I had heard about and read about a a man whose name is Kevin Mitnick, and he was one of the world's most infamous infamous hackers, and Mm -hmm. um, he now runs a security company. So, Ren, do we need reformed bad guys to change sides, or is there a better path, a better way available? to us through improved governance practices?
1: Well, of course we can always um, improve our own governance practices without engaging the reformed enemy. But I always think about the birth of the Security and Exchange Commission and one of the things they did is they hired one of the best um, financial criminals there was Mm -hmm to actually form the Security and Exchange Commission.
0: (laughs) Yeah. um, And
1: sometimes it really does take a thief to catch a thief. Yep. Or at the very little, because we have a long history of doing that in the United States, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the FBI has done that. The CIA has done that. Um, We have greatly benefited from from converting the criminals into... um, the people creating these safety nets for us. Um, and part of the reason why it works is because we're redirecting that passion that I spoke about earlier. When we look at Anonymous, these are people who are cause driven, mm-hmm. they're values driven. Mm-hmm. That is one of the reasons why they're so damn good, they're persistent. Because if something really has meaning, it's over and above money.
2: Sure.
1: Human beings are incredibly capable of doing almost anything. They can get to the moon, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what we've seen with converting these criminals is we create a new cause for them. One that has, or I should say the successful conversion has always been creating a new cause mm-hmm. and helping them become part of the solution.
0: Yeah, that's so. That's so well said, and I loved what you said about passion. You know, it doesn't sound like these guys who are so devoted to these causes—they're not going home at five o'clock, are they?
1: No, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in one of the things that cracks me up—and this happened a few years ago—and I don't know if it came up in your research, but somebody, a billionaire, actually offered people an anonymous. You know several million dollars apiece if they would just stop what they're doing, mm-hmm. and I just laughed I'm like, "You don't get this no, they're not doing this for money. this is a cause,
0: yes yeah. <laughs>
1: you know you can't no one gets that level of passion for money, or very few people do
0: no and I think that that's the that's the real difference and um unhappily we're running out of time but this has been such an interesting um, discussion Ren I know that uh, others out there listening will want to be in touch and for those of you who would like to be directly in touch with Ren you can do that by going directly to her website which is www.renmelberg.com and we mention that because listeners come from iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher and places uh, we probably don't even know about. The podcast is uh, picked up and replayed all over the world. So if you want to be in touch with Ren, RenMelberg.com. And as always, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again next week on the Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg.